It's the late 1980s to early 1990s in Sydney, Australia. The King's Cross area, once home to the city's red light district, is now a thriving center for international travelers. The brothels and illegal drinking dens have made way for hostels and budget accommodation. Backpackers pour into the area from all over the world, carrying nothing but their bare essentials and dreams of adventure. Young men and women on the cusp of adulthood check into cheap hostels. They're at ground zero of an international youth culture that knows no borders, has no rules, and requires only that you survive through wit alone. They dump their backpacks in lockers and head out to enjoy the buzz of the neighborhood. Loud music from bars and clubs lining the King's Cross Strip follows them wherever they go, and their parents' warnings evaporate in the evening excitement. Before leaving home, their parents caution them on the risks of travel. Be careful, they say. Don't take rides from strangers. Don't travel long distances alone. Call us regularly. The young adults assure their parents that travel is safe and promise to keep in regular contact. They promise to send postcards, write letters, and call home when money and time allows. Their parents wait for the next communication, knowing it may be days, weeks, and even months before they hear from them. For many of the young backpackers, their parents' fears are unfounded. Thousands of travelers have plowed the routes they are taking and have come home safely to tell of their adventures. Many fail to realize that in the background of their once-in-a-lifetime travel experience, a series of events is developing that will send shockwaves through Australia and confirm their parents' worst fears. Between December 1989 and April 1992, Seven young backpackers go missing while hitchhiking around Australia. Many use the King's Cross area as a jumping off point for their travels, but somewhere along the highways that stretch across the vast continent, they disappear. The postcards and letters their parents rely on to know their children are safe stop arriving. And the collect calls they have come to expect never get through. What started as a once in a lifetime adventure for the young backpackers quickly turns into a never-ending nightmare for their parents. In late December 1989, 19-year-old Australians Deborah Everest and her friend James Gibson disappear as they travel to the Convergence Festival on the New South Wales-Victoria border from their homes in Melbourne. Two years later, in January 1991, 22-year-old German backpacker Simone Schmidl fails to meet her mother at Melbourne Airport. Then, in January of 1992, 22-year-old German backpacker Gabor Nagybauer and his girlfriend, 20-year-old Anya Habschied, are traveling from Sydney to Darwin to catch a flight to Indonesia. Somewhere along the way, they also disappear. Only a few months later in April 1992, two more backpackers disappear. 22-year-old Caroline Clark and her friend, Joanne Walters, leave Sydney planning to hitchhike to Melbourne. They say goodbye to their friends at their King's Cross Hostel and head off. They are never heard from again. The families report their children are missing, but the Australian authorities are slow to investigate. Backpackers disappear all the time in their view, but they always show up. All anyone can do is wait for the youngsters to make contact. When months and years pass, the police begin to investigate the unusual disappearances but they fail to connect the cases. 
It is not until September 1992, when bodies are discovered in the Belanglo Forest along the Hume Highway that stretches between Sydney and Melbourne, that the police finally realize that they are dealing with a serial killer. The world has fallen deathly silent for the families of seven backpackers traveling through Australia in the late 1980s to early 1990s. The parents are unaware that they are connected by monstrous events. Then, in September 1992, their lives collide. Two bodies are discovered deep in the Belanglo Forest, along the Hume Highway that stretches from Sydney to Melbourne. The crime scene and level of violence it indicates stun the police. The bodies are quickly identified as Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters. The police continue to search the forest, but finding nothing soon call it off. But just over a year later, in October 1993, two more bodies are discovered in Belanglo by a local man. These are identified as Deborah Everest and James Gibson. Realizing the original search was not thorough enough, the police sweep through every inch of the forest. By November 1993, the remains of Simone Schmidl, Gabor Neugebauer, and Anya Habschied are also discovered. The similarities between the crime scenes unnerve the police. New South Wales police realize they are dealing with a serial killer. The investigation that follows is long and fraught with challenges. Information comes flooding in, and tracing the last movements of each of the victims proves difficult. A task force is set up to investigate 230 suspects, and internal conflict between detectives means clues to the killer's identity are overlooked. It is not until April 1994 that a phone call to the task force made in November 1993, soon after the bodies are discovered, is investigated again. And detectives zero in on a suspect, a man named Ivan Malat. In May 1994, they arrest Malat, and a search of his family's home shows numerous items belonging to the seven victims. They have their man. Malat's trial begins in March 1996, and the true horror of his crimes shocks Australia and devastates the parents of his victims. He pleads not guilty and vehemently denies the charges, even implicating one of his brothers as the culprit to avoid conviction. When he is found guilty 15 weeks later and given a life sentence without the possibility of parole for each of the seven murders, it is hoped that the families of the victims can begin to move on. But Malat has not admitted to his crimes and many of them are desperate for a confession and the closure it would provide. Malat refuses and continues to taunt the families, investigators, and the authorities with claims of his innocence from behind bars. Then, 23 years later, in May 2019, news breaks that Ivan Malat is dying of cancer. Years have passed and Malat continues to blight the lives of everyone affected. It is now or never. He has months to live, and detectives and families hope that when faced with his own mortality, Australia's most notorious serial killer will find an ounce of compassion within him. As Malat's health rapidly deteriorates, everyone holds their breath, hoping he will give them the closure they desperately need, or if he'll take the truth with him to the grave. 
At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Ivan Malat, of the words the world hoped he would speak as he lay dying, and his refusal to do so. It is a story about a serial killer who shows no remorse in his final days. Victims whose lives were snatched from them in their prime. Parents living with the grief of losing a child in the most horrendous way imaginable. It's about a family that protected their relative despite his heinous crimes and a nation shocked by the evil lurking within it. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. In the mid-1990s, Ivan Malat is the most hated man in Australia so hated that even his fellow inmates see him as a degenerate. He gives criminals a bad name. He has been found guilty of the murders of seven backpackers in the attempted murder, false imprisonment, and robbery of another. At Maitland Maximum Security Prison, the news of his arrival in 1996 sweeps through the prison population. While Malad is queuing to be admitted, another prisoner walks the line asking for him. Which one's Malad? the inmate keeps asking. None of the other prisoners reply, but the nervous side glances tell him what he needs to know. The inmate approaches Malat and before anyone knows what is happening, punches him in the jaw, followed by two punches to the head. Welcome to Maitland, he spits. Malat doesn't care. His arrogance knows no bounds. He has nothing but contempt for the authorities and sees himself as a victim refusing to accept his convictions throughout his imprisonment. And he refuses to accept the imprisonment itself. In May 1997, he plots an escape from Maitland with other inmates, including notorious drug lord George Savas. 
It is a bold plan involving violently overpowering prison guards and scaling a seven-meter wall to freedom. They set escape day as 17th of May, 1997. But Savas shares the plan with one too many inmates, and prison security hear about it. They thwart the plan before it can be executed. The next day, Malat is transferred to Goldborn Supermax. Over the years, Malat participates in armed riots, goes on a hunger strike to protest his incarceration, and even chops off a finger with the intent to post it to the High Court of Australia to push for an appeal. In 2019, when he is diagnosed with terminal cancer, his scorn for the authorities has not subsided. It has been a 23-year standoff between Malat, detectives, and the families of the victims. Everyone has wanted to forget him and move on as best they can, but he won't let them. By refusing to admit to his crimes or answer the questions that remain outstanding, he ensures he stays at the forefront of their minds. Malat torments them by casting a long shadow over their lives from his solitary confinement cell. And he enjoys it. For detectives, approaching Malat on his deathbed means swallowing their pride. They don't want to pander to his ego and know from experience how difficult and uncooperative he can be in the interview room. For the sake of the families, they schedule an interview with Malat, hoping that he will finally confess to his crimes and give a full account of what he did. In fact, between May and October 2019, New South Wales police schedule nine interviews with Malat, hoping each time he will give a deathbed confession. He toys with them and acts as though their questions have nothing to do with him. It is that old game of cat and mouse detectives are familiar with. He shows no shred of empathy for the families of his victims, let alone any remorse. For some of the detectives, it comes as no surprise. It is only when two female detectives interview him that he participates with the interviews, instead of pretending to be asleep or turning his back to the detectives. When they ask him about the seven murders, he responds, death happens all the time. Detectives try a different technique, an appeal to his love for his own family. They bring up his mother, who staunchly proclaimed her son's innocence until her death in 2001, and 13 brothers and sisters, most of whom also refused to accept his conviction. Maybe their unbreakable family bond will make Malat reflect on the impact of his crimes. He pauses for a moment. Perhaps the detectives have finally got through to him. You could put a blowtorch to my ears and my eyes or whatever, and I still can't help you, he eventually responds. Malad is unwavering in his refusal to cooperate. In one final push, detectives play interviews with victims' families that appeared on the Australian television show Current Affair to Malad. At this point, a confession is unlikely, but if Malad at least shows some remorse, even just a morsel of regret, that might help the families heal. They watch him closely for a reaction. I don't feel sorry for them. Why should I feel sorry for them? He adds as a final insult. Having achieved very little, the detectives are demoralized. But they refuse to give up and cling to the possibility that as Malat's health continues to deteriorate, he will want to confess. As they end their final interview with Malat, one of the detectives tells him that if he wants to talk in the future, he can contact them whenever he wants. Don't hold your breath waiting for me to call, he replies. 
Despite this, detectives leave Malat's bedside hoping he will call. They resolve if he doesn't, they will arrange one final interview. At least, they can then say they did all they could. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Malat's scorn for authority has a long history. He was the fifth child of 14, born on the 27th of December, 1944, in Bosley Park, a western suburb of Sydney. Malat spent his early years in a large wooden shed where the entire family lived. A curtain divided their humble home with one side reserved for parents, Stephen and Margaret, and the other for the children. Though the family struggled, they never went hungry. This was largely due to Stephen's unbreakable work ethic and Margaret's resourcefulness. But it wasn't a happy home. Stephen was a stern father who was violent when disciplining his children. He ruled the family home with an iron fist, though Margaret was always there to cushion the blows when they landed. For fun, he gave his children guns and encouraged them to go out shooting in the bush surrounding their home. This early exposure to guns and the damage they can cause would become an obsession for Malat throughout his life. For many years, Stephen sought to create order within the family through means of violence, but he was never quite able to control the chaos. Coupled with his absence because of the long hours he worked and Margaret being outnumbered by all the children, order and discipline was never really a feature of the Malat home. By 1962, when Margaret gives birth to her 14th child, it is not uncommon for the police to be knocking at the family home. Ivan Malat is 17 and obsessed with guns and cars, much like his older brothers. He also dabbles in crime. In June 1962, he appears in children's court to answer the charge of stealing from a dwelling. As it is his first offense, he is given community service, but he is undeterred. By August, Malat is back in the same court for breaking and entering a garage. This time, the judge sentences him to six months hard labor at Mount Penang Juvenile Institution. In 1964, he is sentenced again to 18 months for robbery. It is the beginning of a long history of criminality. The Malat family build a wall of denial around themselves and refuse to acknowledge the criminal actions of individual members. They argue the authorities target and persecute them. As each new conviction is placed under one of her children's names, Margaret does what she can to raise the bail money, support them during their incarceration, and complain to the authorities and anyone who listens that her children are all innocent and being targeted by the police. No one can break through the wall of denial the family builds around itself. 
even decades later when the bodies of seven young backpackers show up in the Belanglo forest, and Ivan Milad is arrested for their gruesome murder. Between 1989 and 1992, young backpackers on a once-in-a-lifetime journey are mysteriously disappearing from Australia. At first, the authorities are reluctant to launch full investigations. After all, backpackers wander off all the time, but eventually turn up. They also fail to connect the disappearances. The families do what they can to locate their children, but spend months and even years in the limbo of not knowing. All they have to cling to is their last contact with their son or daughter. The first of the disappeared backpackers is James Gibson. He's from Mooradook, just outside of Melbourne. James likes the alternative lifestyle and has traveled to logging protest sites and journeyed up the old Australian hippie trail that has now become the staple route for backpackers. In December 1989, he asks his friend Deborah Everest to come with him to the Convergence Festival near Albury on the New South Wales-Victoria border. He has arranged to meet friends there to celebrate the new year, but Deborah isn't so sure. She grew up in Frankston, in the southern suburbs of Melbourne. Alternative lifestyle festivals are not really her thing, and having dropped out of college the previous year, Deborah is keen to get her journalism career back on track. Besides, she is reluctant to leave her parents. She has spent most of 1989 helping her mother look after her father after his cancer diagnosis. But Deborah's parents want her to enjoy her youth. Over Christmas, her mother, Patricia, pushes her to go to the festival. It'll do you good. You need a break, she says. Deborah relents and agrees to go with James. Patricia will forever be haunted by encouraging her daughter to attend. Listen closely. As a master painter carefully brushes Benjamin Moore Regal Select down the seam of the wall. It's like poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore. See the love. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. James and Deborah depart on Thursday, 28th of December, 1989, from the Frankston Railway Station. On the 29th of December, Deborah calls her mother from Sydney. She tells her they will be heading off to the festival and will call on the 30th. Patricia can hear James in the background. Deborah tells her mother they are getting a lift with friends. But when those friends go ahead without them, James and Deborah plan to hitchhike the 400-kilometer journey to the festival. She doesn't mention it to her mother, as it would only worry Patricia unnecessarily. The 30th of December comes and goes, and Deborah has not called her mother. Patricia quickly begins to worry. She knows her daughter, and if Deborah says she will call, she will call. On New Year's Day, she calls James's mother, Peggy. Peggy isn't so worried. Her son has gone off grid before during his travels, and she knows finding payphones or the time to make the call is not always easy. James always calls eventually. But as the days begin to pass, the two friends still do not contact their parents. The 2nd of January comes and goes, the 3rd, the 4th, and still no contact. Patricia and Peggy begin calling around their child's friends to ask if they have heard from them. The answer is always no. By 15th of January, the two mothers are at their wits end. 
they go to Frankston Police Station to report their son and daughter missing. The police don't consider their disappearances serious. It's midsummer, and there is no way they can investigate every young adult off on a good time. 86% turn up within a fortnight, they tell the distraught mothers. Then 21st of January comes along, three weeks after Deborah last spoke to her mother. James's sister is getting married and he promised to be there. He wouldn't miss it for the world, but James doesn't show and Deborah still hasn't been heard from. The Gibsons and the Everests know something terrible has happened. As January turns to February, the police begin to take the case more seriously. During Missing Persons Week in March 1990, the police managed to garner some media attention around the disappearance. And then, on 13th of March, Peggy receives a phone call. Someone has come across James's backpack in Galston Gorge, 30 kilometers northwest of Sydney. Inside, he has scrawled his name, address, and phone number. Peggy tells the person who found it to hand in the backpack to the nearest police station, and a few days later, James's dad and brother head to Sydney to formally identify it. The find generates more media attention, and another person comes forward to hand over a camera he found around the same location on 31st December 1989, the day after the pair's disappearance. To the police, it makes no sense. James and Deborah were supposed to be heading south down the Hume Highway. The backpack and camera have been found in a pocket of the bush northwest of Sydney. They organize a search of the area, but come up with nothing. Time continues to pass. Deborah's father's health takes a bad turn. Patricia is living in a nightmare, caring for her sick husband while trying to find her missing daughter. Then in the autumn of 1990, Deborah's father dies. He dies having never seen his daughter again or finding out what happened to her. Patricia is overwhelmed, so Peggy takes the lead and does what she can to keep the search going. On the one-year anniversary of James and Deborah's disappearance, James's sister and brother go to the Convergence Festival wearing t-shirts with the missing backpackers' photographs printed on them. It yields no results. The trail has gone cold. The Gibsons and Everests have no idea that as they desperately search for their son and daughter over the course of 1990, another family is about to be plunged into the same nightmare. Simone Schmeidel is an outgoing, adventurous young woman living life to the fullest. She lives in an apartment in Regensburg on the edge of the Bavarian forest in Germany. She skis in the winter, eats out with her friends, and likes to play handball for the Regensburg Athletic Club between it all. In 1986, she makes a trip to Canada with a friend. The trip opens up a love of travel. She goes back in 1989 where she meets some Australians and spends a month exploring the natural beauty of the area. On returning home to Germany, she settles down into work as a secretary, but she has been bitten by the travel bug and in mid-1990 tells her parents she plans to travel to Australia to meet up with friends she made in Canada. Her father Herbert takes her to an outdoor store and Simone buys a bright pink and lilac backpack, a sleeping bag, and a band to tie her sleeping mat. In September 1990, Herbert drops Simone off at the Regensburg Railway Station. Even though his daughter is well-traveled and sensible, as a father, Herbert can't help but worry. As they say goodbye, he warns her of taking lifts from strangers. She promises she won't. If something happens to you, I am so far away, I can't do anything for you. 
Herbert tells her as he loads her luggage on the train. Simone tries to alleviate his fears with humor. Papa, you take care of yourself. Besides, if anything happens to me, you will find out about it because they will send me back in a black coffin. Like Patricia, these last words with his daughter will haunt Herbert forever. Simone arrives in Sydney on October 1st, 1990. She decides to hitchhike down the Hume Highway to Melbourne with a fellow backpacker. Despite her father's warnings, Simone does not see any danger. She is traveling alone and has done her research. Hitchhiking is how all the backpackers traveling on a shoestring get around the country. Throughout October and November, Simone travels around Australia, sometimes hitchhiking and other times driving an old car she bought for the more remote journeys. In late November, she travels to New Zealand with the friend she made early on during her trip. While there, they buy matching plastic green army water bottles. With a marker pen, Simone scribbles her nickname, Simmy, on it. As Christmas approaches, Simone calls her father and tells him about the great time she is having in New Zealand. Herbert warns her again about taking lifts from strangers, and again, she promises she won't. On the 19th of January, 1991, Simone flies back from New Zealand to Sydney. Her mother is flying into Melbourne on the 24th of January to join her daughter on a segment of her travels. On the 20th of January, Simone starts her journey from Sydney to Melbourne. She plans on taking a train to Liverpool, from where she can walk to the Hume Highway and hitch a ride to Melbourne. Early on the morning of the 20th of January, a local resident in Liverpool is driving along the Hume Highway to the McDonald's. On the side of the road, she sees a young girl with wild, dark brown dreadlocks tied in a purple scarf and carrying a large backpack walking away from the train station. The resident spends three to five minutes in McDonald's, and when she gets back on the Hume, she notices the young woman is gone. The resident doesn't realize this at the time, but it's the last known sighting of Simone. On the 24th of January, Simone's mother, Erwinia, flies into Melbourne, expecting to see Simone at the arrivals gate, but Simone's not there. Instead, a friend is there to greet Erwinia. They tell her Simone hasn't turned up. Erwinia knows something terrible has happened. On the 25th of January, Erwinia reports her daughter missing with both the Victorian police and the New South Wales police. As with Deborah and James, the police are not concerned and believe Simone will eventually show up. Erwinia phones Herbert in Germany, racked with worry. He assures her Simone is probably fine and most likely got delayed. But the days turn into nights and Simone still doesn't show up in Melbourne. Erwinia contacts the Australian broadcaster SBS Television, who gives her daughter's disappearance some media coverage. The local resident who saw Simone on the Hume Highway calls the police to report the sighting. The police do not follow up. In fact, it takes them three years to call her back and follow up on the lead. Erwinia does not give up. She stays in Melbourne throughout February, doing whatever she can to draw attention to Simone's disappearance. Eventually, after six weeks and having no real leads, she has no choice but to return home. Back in Germany, Herbert prints 1,500 missing persons posters of his daughter and posts them to Australia. The people at SBS Television and Friends of Simone help put them up in churches, universities, railway stations, bus stations, schools, backpack hostels, and anywhere else they can think of. He tries to involve the German police. They dismiss him, telling him he needs to contact the Australian police. 
Herbert even writes to the German president for assistance. The president replies with a generic response that advises Herbert to contact the Australian authorities. He contacts the German consuls in Sydney and Melbourne. They're more helpful, but still do nothing. Herbert can barely function. He takes leaves from work, but finds himself reliant on alcohol and sleeping pills to get through the long days and even longer nights. He goes back to work just to have something to do. Erwinia is just as distraught. Their daughter has disappeared, and no one seems to care. There is one man who knows exactly what has happened to Simone, and what has happened to James and Deborah, but it will take months before anyone will even investigate fully, let alone connect the disappearances. As the families continue to live in the darkness, and the police continue to treat the disappearances as unsuspicious, Ivan Malat is free to continue his life and continue to murder. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, Ivan Malat continues his head games while detectives race against the clock to get a confession. More backpackers go missing in the Australian outback and their families' pleas for help fall on deaf ears. A series of gruesome discoveries are made in the Belanglo Forest and Ivan Malat finally gets his day in court. That's next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Saida Ruas. Supervising Editor, Alex Benedin. Sound Design by Matias Torresole. Sound Supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix Master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs>